an Island Express charter helicopter is taking Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and six other people to Camarillo, California when disaster strikes. What caused this flight to end up hitting terrain? Welcome back to the Heart Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Today we have Leo. Hey! hey. <laughs> <laughs> Leo hasn't hung out with us for a while. So. Yeah, it's been a hot minute. He's literally lived here for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he doesn't come up here to do the recording thing. This is also our first time recording in like three weeks. Yeah. So uh, services did not get interrupted for you, but services got interrupted for us. We've already so. said it before, but Happy New Year, because now we are in the new year, and uh, we yeah. weren't the last time we recorded, so yes. Happy New Year. 2022. A few things before we start. If you didn't watch the November Aviation Stories, it is out now. And yes, we did say watch. Because it's a video. You should be able to watch it on spotify and on anchor didn't exactly go to plan but it was a test anyways so it was kind of a mess yeah but so you can also if you're a patron it's also on patreon so you can either do one of those three things to watch it most of the people that answered the poll on spotify said they liked it but only like 10 people answered out of like the 195 people who've listened to it have answered it so cool we just, it's not going to be like a for sure thing to do in the future yet. We're trying to figure that out, but we'll let you guys know. Basically, we want to know if it's worth our time to pour more money into it. Right. Right. Give us your feedback. Yeah, let us know. If you don't like it, please tell us because otherwise we won't know beforehand. If you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, this is your last and final boarding call to submit your... <laughs> Aviation stories for January. Yeah, currently we have two. We have one from David for December. What, what? And one from David for January. What, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> if you have not submitted, it's your new adventure stories. So. I'm starting a new adventure tomorrow. Yeah. Yay! Also, if you want ducks, there's a thing on the website where you can get ducks. You can order ducks. And ducks. we will send you ducks for free. No charge to you. They will be autographed on the butt by us. Unless so. you live in Australia or New Zealand currently, because the United States Postal Service is um, actual trash. Don't bankrupt so. us in sending ducks, but do feel free to order some. If we get too many orders, we'll probably stop it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but for well, now... We'll probably do until we run out of ducks. Yes. For now, we'll run with it, and we have plenty to go. So, If you want ducks, it's at the bottom of the page on the homepage on the website. I am assuming, given the title of this episode, there are probably a few of you who are listening who are new here. Welcome. Welcome. Nice to meet you. I guess. You might be confused. Leo is my little brother. Yes. Just to clear that up. We're also covering some basic stuff in this episode. In case you haven't been here before, this is your first time listening. So please don't worry if we go into something, we will explain it. At least Leo should stop us if it's something. Yep, that's why I'm here. I'm yeah. the dumb dumb. <laughs> the designated dumb dumb. That's okay. You said it, not me. So... <laughs> All right, I think that's all housekeeping, right? Yeah. All right, what are we covering today, Nick? Well, today we are covering the Kobe Bryant crash. Also, the Calabasas, California helicopter crash of 2020. Wow. Also known as... November 7-2 Echo X-Ray. Thank you to a bunch of people for recommending this. I didn't write down any names because we were kind of already doing it, but this is an anniversary episode, more or less. I think it's the same week. Yes. So. Also, kind of on a side note, thank you to the 
patrons. I think is it the patrons that have been saying put my name down for Yes. So, I don't know if you've been seeing that. No. But, but we have a bunch of patrons that have decided Literally they want their like name. Literally like 10 patrons are like put me down for Ethiopian. Put me down for <laughs> Ethiopian because we talked about in the episode that came out this past week how I want to do Ethiopian but I have to wait for people to request it. Although I did request it. It is on the schedule. But now I can put all of your names on it so it can't get moved. So thanks. That's going to be a <laughs> big one whenever we get around to it. So. Okay. Boom. So the Kobe Bryant crash. This happened on January 26th of 2020. So almost two years ago. Wow. Was that two years ago? That's hard yeah. to think when about. When does this... Oh, I hate that. Two years this... ago? I know. Dude, that's one of those events where, you know, you immediately remember where you were and what you were doing when you heard about it. Oh, yeah, we were. We were at church. We were yeah. playing at the church game. Were you with I us? I forgot about yeah, that. We were there yeah. that All day. of us were there. This comes out on the 25th. So this is the day before two years of the anniversary. Wow. This was a Sikorsky S-76 helicopter with the tail number November 72 Echo X-Ray, and it was being operated by Island Express Helicopters, and it was built in 1991. This was a charter flight from Orange County, or John Wayne International Airport, or... Or Santa Ana. Santa Ana, whatever you want to call it. Sa Nata Ana. Yeah, that one. To the Camarillo Airport to take Kobe Bryant and his daughter up to the Mamba Sports Academy. And other people, right? Yes, Not and other people. Yeah. I'll get there. There were yes, there were other people on yes. board. And Mamba Sport up to Mamba Sports Academy for one of her basketball games. Kobe was the coach for her team. Wow, that's amazing! Yeah. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> yes, if you don't know who Kobe Bryant is, welcome to the world. <laughs> he was a basketball player, a very famous for the one Lakers, at that. Yeah. Yes, for the Lakers, a very famous one at that. Hello, welcome from Con- out of that rock you've been living under. Congrats right. for being born today. <laughs> for being born today. Moving on. The pilot was Era Zobayan. He's 50 years old. He had 8,577 hours total, of which 1,250 hours were on the type on the Sikorsky. So relatively experienced. He is VFR rated. Or visual flight rules. Visual flight rules rated, particularly for the Sikorsky. What does that mean? So that means he can fly... Using visuals out of the window, he is not instrument rated, which means he is not allowed to rely on instruments. So he cannot fly into any conditions where he that, loses visual. Where he gotcha. loses visual out gotcha. of the window, and you only have to use your instruments. Right. Gotcha. So he is visually rated on the Skorsky, but not instrument rated. So that is a factor. We will talk more about that later on. Just an important thing because this is a charter flight. He has his commercial license. He's allowed to fly people for money. He is. This is his job. He's not, a do it, well, not allowed to do it in instruments, which, in most cases in helicopters, and especially in Southern California, not usually that big of a problem. I'll also talk a little bit about that later, too, because it's a, it, it's a whole thing. It's so a will whole I. thing? Yes. Okay. Anyways. And that is called foreshadowing. Back into the what's happening. There were a total of nine people on board, including the pilot, Kobe Bryant, and his daughter. Another person of note was John Altobelli. He was the head coach for the Orange Coast College basketball team. The flight was requested and scheduled through an air charter broker company a few weeks prior to the flight. The flight was originally booked for 9.45 a.m., but was later changed to 9 a.m. on the night before the flight. A flight risk assessment form was completed by the pilot on the morning of the accident flight, and it was determined that the flight was low risk. I believe it was 12 out of 42 or something like 12 that. 12 out of 45. 12 out of 45. There you that's go. That's the rating? That was the rating. And that's okay. just for the low risk. Anything up to 45 points is considered low risk. Yes. Oh, okay. So he's in the low risk category. On the low end of the low risk category. Yeah. Yes. So it was considered a good-to-go flight. 
The director of operations for Island Express checked the weather for the flight that morning and believed it to be safe to fly, and the flight was, at worst, going to be 30 minutes delayed. The pilot also felt similar about this, given the weather circumstances. The pilot arrived with the helicopter at Orange County at 8.37 a.m., at which time the pilot spoke with the charter broker, the owner of the charter broker company, and informed him that the flight would be going as planned, on time. The pilot showed the owner of the charter broker company his ForeFlight map. So ForeFlight is an app for all Apple products that is 100% legally usable for pilots to do all their flight planning, their hour logging, and weather... Planning, everything. I mean, it is a whole app to do everything you do as a pilot. And it's FAA approved. FAA approved. Oh, it wow. is It is the most widely used tool in all of aviation these days. Brendan uses it. Yep. yep. I mean, if you learn to fly, it's pretty much dumb not to do that. Yeah. You just pull it up on your phone. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I mean, commercial pilots in airliners, they use this or a very similar app, but for flight most commonly, that will, for all their flight planning, for weather planning, for traffic, for everything. I mean, this thing does everything. Basically, it can do everything that's on your instrument panel, apart from diving into like autopilot functions, but it does any kind of planning or weather or traffic, anything like that. And... It, it does it all. It's a really smart app. But anyway, so he was using this to show weather on the map, and he was using his cell phone to show the the owner of the charter company the color-coded weather map. It showed that everything south of downtown Los Angeles was blue, indicating good conditions for flying the flight as he had planned. So basically, in the direction he had planned, everything looked good. It was decent conditions for where he was going. It also showed that everything at downtown Los Angeles and north over Burbank, Van Nuys, and up to Camarillo was red, which indicated that weather conditions were not ideal along that part of the flight route. The pilot then explained to the charter operator that he planned to go, quote, up and around the weather, end quote, by going east and north of the clouded areas. He indicated that his flight path would have them flying past Dodger Stadium, then around Burbank, to follow State Route 118, literally a road. In visual conditions, it is common to use roads to navigate when you're looking out the window. I mean, why not? They're there. Exactly. The flight departed Orange County at 9.07 a.m., so about seven minutes behind schedule. That could be any reason they didn't give any. Could just be it took that long for passengers to get on board. Doesn't really matter. And they took off flying initially northwest. At that time, the weather at Orange County was reported to be visibility of four nautical miles and ceilings at 1,000 feet. Ceilings means the bottom of the cloud. Yes, the ceiling is the bottom of the cloud. Interesting. So So it's the ceiling of the free space under this cloud, if that makes sense. So you have to think about it in terms, when you're talking about, because there is ceiling and floor, you have to think about it in terms of your orientation to the clouds. So where you are and where the clouds are. If you are below the clouds, then it is a ceiling above you. If you gotcha. are above the clouds, then it is the floor below you. Got it. So, But that's really confusing, too, because when you ask ATC for weather, and you say, what are the ceilings? You're asking, what's actually the bottom of the clouds? But yep. you ask, well, what are the floors? You're asking about the top of the clouds. It's all backwards. Yeah, it sounds really backwards. It sounds really backwards, but it all that's actually exactly what I it is. I mean, depending on where you are, it kind of makes sense, right? Yes. If, you're, if you know you're above the clouds, then the floors make sense. Right. You have to understand what your orientation to the cloud is. Yes. That is what it's based on. It's about on. perspective. Yes. It's all about perspective. So, ceilings were at 1,000 feet. AGL or MSL? MSL. Okay, that's above sea level? 
Yes, that is above sea level. Not above the ground, which is what AGL is. I will be switching back and forth between sea level and ground level, but I will clarify those. So will I. Yep. The flight initially climbed to 1,000 feet, MSL, sea level, by 9.10 a.m. before descending down to 600 feet at 9.13 a.m., but a short time later it climbed back up to 1,000 feet, which was about 400 to 600 feet above the ground as the terrain changed below. Now... In context with normal airplanes, this would definitely seem very, very low. With helicopters, not as much. This is pretty common. It's not untold that they can fly this low. They do. You've probably heard them over at your house before. That's because they can. A little bit of different rules that apply to them because of the way they operate. So, this is low, but not that low. They were cruising at about 140 to 150 knots. At 9.20 a.m. and 14 seconds, the flight was flying at 800 feet, about 8.5 nautical miles southeast of Burbank, when the pilot contacted the Burbank Tower Controller to request special VFR clearance through the airspace along U.S. Route 101. You might want to follow along on the maps we'll have on the website. They come directly from the report, and they are actually really great tools to follow along with what's happening. Since this is a visual flight, there's he's not following, like, any sort of highways in the sky or anything. He's literally following roads. So it is pretty useful to yeah, look at can, this map. You can pretty clearly see that. Yes. Yeah. It, it makes things a lot more obvious. The controller requested the flight hold just south of Burbank's airspace until conflicting traffic was cleared from the requested route. Landing traffic at Burbank. The pilot then requested a cloud tops, or a the floor of the clouds, from the air traffic controller, and he told them that the tops were at 2,400 feet. So that would have been when he would have broke out on top, above the clouds. Okay. It was at 2,400 feet. 9.21 a.m. to 9.32 a.m., the flight held just outside of the Burbank airspace between 900 and 1,100 feet MSL, or 400 to 650 feet AGL, around the changing terrain, at about 40 to 70 knots. 9.27 a.m. and 52 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that because of several conflicting aircraft departing Burbank to the south, the flight should expect instead to follow the I-5, the Interstate 5, north, then cross the Van Nuys airspace. Van Nuys is a very, very busy airport because it serves Hollywood. Over to Camarillo. The pilot replied, quote, no problem, end quote. Why were they holding? Because of airplanes at Burbank. So. Oh, okay. When you enter from the side of downtown Los Angeles, especially flying at the altitude they're at, there's a very small valley you have to fly through, and Burbank is right on the other side of that valley. Its airspace stretches across that valley, because oh. you see how the mountains come across from west to east, and oh, then there's yeah. a north set. There's a little valley right between those two crests of mountains that you have to fly between, basically, at that altitude that they're at. And so they're having to hold there because of the conflicting traffic at Burbank. There's no way to get them, like, around around because of the mountains. Right, got They it. have to go through that valley. So they're trying to find the best way for them to then go through Burbank's airspace to get where they need to go. Yeah, without hitting an, another aircraft. Exactly. Got it. Not being in the way. So the new routing would have had them flying even closer to Burbank than they actually originally intended. But because of the airplanes that were departing to the south, this would have been more out of the way for traffic. At 9.32 a.m. and 17 seconds, the air traffic controller provided the flight with the special VFR clearance to follow the I-5 northwest through Burbank's airspace, and the pilot acknowledged the instructions. The air traffic controller then informed the flight of the weather conditions at Burbank. 
and had visibility of 2.5 nautical miles with haze and 1,100-foot ceilings, which was identical conditions at Van Nuys. Because Van Nuys is not very far away. Question. Mm -hmm. So did their original route have them going up and then along 118? Yes. Which 118 yeah, crosses to the it. south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it just like they had to go cat-eye corner instead of going straight over and across? Basically, yes. Okay. So, yeah. They were going to go up and across to 118. That's kind of what now they're doing on the I-5, then 118, then down to 101. Got it. Okay. Anyways, it's all, all right. it's all complicated, but they were trying to cut, yeah, directly across Burbank instead of up, up I-5. Up and over. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. At 9.34 a.m. and 41 seconds, as the flight was about one mile from the center of Burbank Airport, the pilot advised the air traffic controller that he would like to take State Route 118 around Van Nuys, then follow US 101 to Camarillo, which the controller acknowledged. At 9.35 a.m. and 35 seconds, the pilot contacted the Van Nuys Tower controller to request the special VFR transition clearance and reported flying at 1,400 feet. That's above sea level. The flight was actually at 1,320 feet, which, when you're in VFR, this isn't abnormal. It's not abnormal for them to report one thing and then be a little off. It's not a big deal. But they were at about 520 feet AGO, for context. Above the ground. Yes. Van Nuys Air Traffic Control cleared the flight to cross the Van Nuys airspace at or below 2,500 feet above sea level along State Route 118, and the pilot acknowledged the clearance. At around 9.39 a.m., the helicopter began turning south along the outer edge of Van Nuys airspace, and at that time, the Van Nuys air traffic controller instructed the flight to contact the Southern California Approach Control. They have a much longer name than that, but we're going to go with that. Southern California Terminal Radar Approach Controller. Yes. Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) SoCal Approach. That's what we're going with. 9.40 a.m. in nine seconds, the pilot contacted the approach controller and informed them that they were transitioning through Van Nuys airspace to the south in VFR conditions, quote-unquote, at 1,500 feet over to Camarillo. At the time, the helicopter was at 1,520 feet. The air traffic controller then asked if he was planning, if the pilot was planning to, quote, stay down low all the way to Camarillo, end quote. And the pilot responded, quote, yes, sir, low altitude, end quote. The controller then informed the pilot that they would likely soon lose radar contact due to the low altitude and instructed the flight to squawk VFR. This means to set the transponder, which is what relays the information to the radar of the air traffic controller from the airplane or the aircraft, to 1200. So this code, these codes mean different things to the controllers. If they give them a specific code, it just gives them an idea of where they're going, what they're doing, things like that. But 1200 is a standard code that means I am just flying in visual conditions. I am not in any kind of controlled flight plan. You don't need to keep an eye on me. Right. Gotcha. And they do that specifically because they told him to switch to 1200 because he wasn't going to be able to stay on their radar at the low altitude anyways. With the changing terrain around there, it was likely that the helicopter was going to be too low for radar contact. So it wasn't just a matter of you don't need to keep an eye on me. It's I can't keep an eye on you. Exactly. So at that point, it was basically the air traffic controller saying, be safe. Yeah, go. Follow your VFR rules. Follow your heart. The pilot acknowledged... Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The pilot acknowledged these instructions. For that period of time and a period after the transmission, the aircraft remained below 1,700 feet, MSL above sea level, and between 400 and 600 feet above the ground. 
9.42 a.m. and 45 seconds, the helicopter reached US-101, then began following it west toward Camarillo, while flying at about 1,420 feet, or 550 feet above the ground. And they were flying at about 140 knots. Just keep on cruising. 9.44 a.m. and 32 seconds, a witness saw the helicopter flying over US-101, below and at the cloud ceiling, before disappearing into, quote, a thick wall, end quote, of clouds. Hmm. At the time, the helicopter was at about 1,370 feet, or 450 feet above the ground. 9.44 a.m. and 34 seconds, the pilot reported to the air traffic controller, quote, gonna go ahead and start our climb to go above the uh, layers and uh, we can stay with you here, end quote. Interesting. I have a lot of problems with that. There's a lot of problems with that. We'll get into it later. Uh Uh-huh. But I have a lot, a lot of problems with that. Yes! At that time, the helicopter began climbing at a rate of about 1,500 feet per minute and began a left turn remaining generally over US-101. The air traffic controller, who was now replaced on duty from the previous traffic controller on the approach control. A new guy. So there's a new person now sitting in the seat. This happens regularly. They're only allowed to be sitting in that seat for so long. Yeah, we've to... talked about fatigued ATC before. Right. Not good. They have to change out every so often. And it's pretty often. Like, they, they stay on shift, but they have to take breaks often. Yeah. So they trade. You would, too. You mm-hmm. work at oh, ATC? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's high stress, especially in SoCal. Are you oh, kidding yeah. me? <laughs> so this new air traffic controller requested the flight's position, and the pilot reported being just west of Van Nuys. 9.44 a.m. and 55 seconds, the air traffic controller requested that the pilot ident and the pilot acknowledge. So ident is actually a little tiny button on your transponder that just makes you ping on their radar. It oh, basically sense. lights you up so that they see, like, this where, is who I am talking you? to. Yeah. Gotcha. Specifically. When there's a lot of airplanes in a little area, sometimes they're like, I don't know which one you are. It's you're in me. The same, you're in the same area as, like, it's six like other airplanes. You. <laughs> it's a me. Right. So then it lights you up on their radar and it says, this is me. And they get it. Once the pilot performed the ident, the air traffic controller noted that the flight was squawking 1,200, and then asked if the flight wanted VFR flight following, which is flight following by the air traffic controller. Right. So none, it is VFR, but it is controlled VFR. Can you keep an eye on me now? Thanks. Exactly. <laughs> and the pilot repri- replied, quote, yes, sir, end quote. 9.45 a.m. and 10 seconds, the helicopter continued its climb, but then began a left turn to the south away from US-101, reaching a maximum altitude of 2,370 feet above sea level, or 1,600 feet above the ground, at 9.45 a.m. and 15 seconds. The helicopter then suddenly began a rapid descent from there, while still in its left turn. a.m. and 17 seconds, so just two seconds later, the air traffic controller requested the flight's intentions, and the pilot reported that they were going to climb to 4,000 feet. This was the first that air traffic control was hearing of this. ATC then asked what the pilot's intentions were after climbing to 4,000 feet, but the pilot did not respond, and there was no further communication from the flight. Huh. 9.45 a.m. and 36 seconds, the helicopter was was at just 1,295 feet or 180 feet above the ground, according to the last reported point on the ADS-B track. ADS-B is a form of transponder, a newer form of transponder, that relays a lot more data to satellites as well as other aircraft and ADS-B stations. If any of you have the app Flight Radar 24 or anything similar, like there's open ADS-B, there's a couple others, that's usually the information they're getting is from the ADS-B transponder. Right. 
The aircraft then crashed about 500 feet later into a hillside at an altitude of 1,100 feet above sea level in Calabasas, California. I'm now going to read this witness statement, this entire paragraph from the report verbatim, because it sums things up pretty well, and I didn't feel the need to rewrite any of this. Quote, According to a ground witness who was bicycling on trails near the accident site, the area was surrounded by mist at the time of the accident. He heard what he described as the normal sound of a helicopter flying for about 20 seconds. Then he suddenly saw the descending helicopter emerge from the clouds and roll to the left. He estimated that he saw the helicopter for about 1 to 2 seconds before it struck the terrain and erupted into flames, about 200 feet from his location. Oh, wow. He approached the accident site and found no survivors. End quote. This witness also took pictures of the wreckage in flames about three minutes after the accident. And the flames happened pretty fast, which is why he probably didn't stick around to try to help anymore. He could. That picture is in the report. Yes. The pictures of the flames is in I'll, the report. I'll get it. It was quickly apparent that all nine on board perished in the crash. The wreckage was located on a 36 degree slope. The main wreckage was located about 95 feet downslope from the main or initial impact crater. And there was no sign of fire at the crater, but the main wreckage had burned from the post-impact fuel and brush fire. And I'm going to leave it there, because I assume that you both have more. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. So that is it for me. Any questions so far? Yeah, so you said that during his rapid descent, Mm -hmm. he told them that they were going to ascend to 4,000. It basically happened while they were already in a descent. We'll talk about why that is in a bit. I was but, a bit confused on that. Yes. He was initially climbing. I mean, he told them that they were going to climb. They started climbing 1,500 feet per minute. He told them that they were going to keep climbing to 4,000 feet, but at this point, they were already starting to descend, and very fast, I might add. This but is a were, common phenomenon we will I will discuss about, yeah. at the yes. end of my bit. But they were in a left turn, and just a short time later, they... Hit the hill. I mean, it happened so fast from the time that they got to their peak altitude to the time that they were on the hillside was very, very short. This investigation was performed by the National Transportation Safety Board or the NTSB. That was oddly cheerful. This aircraft was not equipped with, nor was it required to be equipped with, a cockpit voice recorder, despite having been equipped with one when it was delivered by Sikorsky to Island Express. Isn't that a thing? Oh, it gets worse from there. Oh, I know. Wait, I'm confused. Say that again. So, when the helicopter was given to Island Express, it had a CVR, but it was not equipped for this flight, which means they took Took it it out. out. And they are allowed to by FAA regulations. Why? Helicopters do not require cockpit voice recorders or flight data recorders. Interesting. So they can just take it out on their own accord? Yep. <laughs> Which I feel like if it already comes equipped with one, why would you take it out? Yeah, Wait. I don't understand if there was a okay. reason. Okay, so you have a question, you have an answer to that question? That's my assumption. It's probably weight. It oh. literally, all it oh. said was due to interior modifications. Hmm. That's, it, and it was a footnote. It wasn't even in the report. It was, anyway. Which way could it possibly, okay. I just, to me, sorry. it always feels like, mm, you're trying to do some shady stuff. Yeah, it seems very <laughs> shady. <laughs> Anyway, it was clear from the wreckage and the ADSB data that the aircraft entered a rapidly descending left turn and crashed into terrain. Yes. The following factors were deemed as not applicable to this accident, so I won't be talking about them. Pilot qualification deficiencies. He was trained 
Okay, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. talk a little bit about that later. <laughs> <laughs> he was trained for their operation. Yes, I'm talking about. We're going to talk a little bit what about we already their operations about. later. <laughs> what we already briefly talked about. Pilot impairment due to medical condition, alcohol, drugs, or fatigue. Thank God. <laughs> These were not factors. Helicopter malfunction or failure. It was not a mechanical failure. No, it wasn't the helicopter. Or, and this one's interesting later, pressure on the pilot from Island Express, the air charter broker, or the client Kobe Bryant. This leaves two potential culprits, ATC and the pilot. In lieu of the CVR, investigators dug into one of the only recordings available, the air traffic control recording. Using this combined with the ADSB data, investigators were able to discern some of the events. Two minutes before the accident, the helicopter was flying 450 feet above U.S. Highway 101 when the pilot announced to ATC that he was going to climb, quote-unquote, above the layers, at which time a climb of 1,500 feet per minute began. He entered a left turn to continue following U.S. 101. 36 seconds later, the left turn tightened, and they were no longer overflying the highway. At an altitude of 1,600 feet above the ground, the helicopter began to descend rapidly in a left turn, at which time the air traffic controller asked the pilot to state his intentions, and the pilot replied he was climbing to 4,000 feet MSL. Was air traffic control in any way responsible for what occurred? The first Southern California Terminal Radar Approach Controller, which I henceforth will be abbreviating to SoCal Controller, made the decision to not provide radar services since they knew that radar and radio coverage for low-flying aircraft was limited in that area, and they were well within their rights to make that decision. So they told the pilot to squawk VFR, which told the pilot that they wouldn't provide any flight-following service, and the pilot acknowledged that. Four minutes later, the pilot announced to SoCal ATC, who is now a different controller, that he was going to climb. The new controller asked the pilot to ident and state intentions as per ATC procedures. The pilot then requested flight following services, but crashed before ATC could get all the relevant information to begin flight following. So far, ATC had technically done everything correctly. Here's where that changed. According to procedures, quote, a controller should consider an unexpected loss of radar contact and radio communication with a flight to be an aircraft emergency and report it to the Rescue Coordination Center or the Air Route Traffic Control Center, end quote. But the SoCal ATC didn't do that after incorrectly determining that the losses were because the helicopter was flying in an area of spotted coverage. However, that decision ultimately didn't affect anything because no one survived and witnesses immediately called 911. So, ATC didn't cause the crash. So, that leaves the the pilot. So, let's start all the way back at planning for the flight. FAA regulations for such a flight require visibility of at least half a mile, visual reference to the surface or the ground, and a minimum flight altitude of 300 feet above the ground. Island Express had the same requirements, except for visibility, which they were more conservative about and required one nautical mile of visibility. And they recommended that minimum flight altitudes be between 500 and 1,000 feet above the ground, though they only required 300 feet. They also required pilots to get a weather briefing from an approved source so that they could determine if a flight was even feasible. There is no record or data available to prove that the pilot got a formal pre-flight weather briefing either from the flight services provider, for flight, or from a third-party vendor. That doesn't mean he didn't, but there's nothing saying he did. Interesting. 
I thought so. The pilot completed a flight risk analysis form about two hours before departure and included the weather risk item for a ceiling less than 2,000 feet above the ground, which was consistent with the information available at that time. The form scored a risk of 12 for the flight and was in the low risk category. Anything up to 45 points would be considered low risk. While on the ground at Orange County Airport, the visibility for Van Nuys changed to 2.5 miles less than what the pilot used to complete his flight risk analysis form, and this would have required a special visual flight rules clearance to fly. Did the pilot fill out a new risk analysis form? No. no. Wow. Was he required to? Technically, no. Huh. Yep. The director of operations for Island Express said that he expected his pilots to fill out a new form when there was a significant change in weather, but it wasn't required in any company guidance. So he's working off a weather report that isn't current? Right. Yeah. Correct. How should that be allowed? Uh-huh. It shouldn't. Correct. That's the point. <laughs> you are right. Visibility below three miles would have added a nine-point risk item and required the pilot to call the director of operations. And an en route special VFR clearance would have added eight points. And it would have added an alternative flight plan. Ultimately, the flight would have still been considered low risk, but at least the pilot would have had an alternative flight plan. Gotcha. Probably Van Nuys. Probably. Now, the same pilot had flown the same passengers to the same destination the previous morning. More directly from Orange County to Camarillo and at a higher altitude. But the morning of the accident, there was a particularly thick marine layer, which is an air mass that develops during a temperature inversion over a large body of water. You know, like the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, if you've ever... This happened to me the first time I went to Disney when I was like 12. You look outside and it's cloudy. And here in Colorado, you look outside, it's cloudy, it's cold. Usually. Or dark. Like it's dark cloudy. Mm -hmm. But in California, it... Sun, it's a fog. It gets, yeah, it gets sunny by noon. Yep. So, and it's not cold, per se. It's just the marine layer coming in from the water. Yep. The water cools the warm air, and the surface air becomes denser than the warm air above it, trapping it near the surface, which then increases the humidity by evaporation of the ocean. A thick fog may develop, and this commonly happens in this area of California, as we have experienced several times. It usually happens in the morning. Yes. Now, I, don't any meteorologists come for me. I know that the cloud itself isn't called the marine layer. I know. Just bear with me. That's what everyone colloquially calls it. There's a word. Colloquial. <laughs> <laughs> this marine layer extended up to 2,400 to 2,500 feet in altitude, and the near surface humidity was 100% at 1,000 feet. <laughs> Higher than when the pilot did his risk analysis. That being said, the base of this fog or cloud layer would have been variable depending on where you were. A National Weather Service forecaster and a local private pilot both described the area over US 101 as having cloud ceilings and visibilities lower than the areas to the east, like Van Nuys. Since cool air would tend to sink and pool at night in a lower elevation area in the mountains less than a mile from the accident site. It would then move inland and stack up against the hills, and a westbound flight would quickly lose visual contact with US-101 as the road descends down the hill. At this point, the NTSB had to perform a visibility study, as there was no hard data on the visibility in that exact location as of yet. This is me somewhat incorporating these pictures. 
based on witness reports, camera footage, weather, cameras in the area, etc., and their respective distances from the accident site, investigators determined that the visibility beneath the clouds was between 1 and 1.5 and miles, with cloud bases between 1,300 and 1,400 feet above sea level or lower. What altitude did they crash at? 1,100 feet. So we're talking like 200 feet above the ground is about where the clouds end. Wow. Mm, not great. But investigators were unable to determine at exactly what points the pilot would have lost visuals with the ground, but the cloud layer would have been thick above 2,000 feet. Quote, Thus, the NTSB concludes that, at the time that the pilot took action to initiate a climb, the helicopter had already begun penetrating clouds, and the pilot lost visual reference to the horizon and the ground. The loss of outside visual reference was possibly intermittent at first, but likely complete by the time the flight began to enter the left turn that diverged from its route over US-101, end quote. So he couldn't see US-101 anymore, therefore couldn't follow it to Camarillo. Right. So what led him to fly so quickly into the clouds? A Eurosafety instructor who had trained the accident pilot in weather avoidance said that in such conditions... You could and should fly as low as 60 knots to allow maneuvering around weather. What was this helicopter flying at? 140 knots? Yep. Reducing decision-making time, particularly in regards with choosing an alternative course of action to avoid instrument meteorological conditions, or IMC. So, conditions in which you have to use instruments to fly. Yeah, which he's not trained for. No! Correct. Okay, so what? He flew into the clouds. He at least has the instruments to look at, right? There are instruments that will tell you the things that you lose the ability to see, like pitch attitude, bank angle, and climb or descent rate. Got another quote for you. Quote, FAA guidance notes that the need to use outside visual references is natural for helicopter pilots and that avoiding entering IMC during a VFR flight is critical for even instrument rated pilots in IFR equipped helicopters. So even if he was instrument rated, he still should have been... Avoiding. Yeah. Able to see the ground. That's the big problem here. Getting to able to see the ground. Yes. The guidance considers a VFR flight's encounter with IMC, during which the pilot may be unprepared for the loss of visual reference, to be a life-threatening emergency. This is because, following the loss of visual cues in flight, pilots are susceptible to experiencing vestibular illusions, which can lead to spatial disorientation and a loss of control of the aircraft. End quote. Illusions? Yep. Yes. So Spatial disorientation's huge. I'm going to get into that right now. So your vestibular system in your inner ear helps you have a sense of balance and spatial orientation. You know, which way's up and which way's down. Yeah. What it can't figure out are acceleration and tilt. You get those from visual cues. So when you're flying, you have to trust your instruments more than your brain. Which, how freaking counterintuitive is that? You have to not trust your brain that is telling you that this way is up and this way is down when your flight instruments are telling you something different. You have to not trust your brain. Well, and you don't really understand that until you're in a flight and you realize how easy it is to lose. Even in visual flight oh, yeah. conditions. If oh, well, because we've done it with Brendan in visual yeah. conditions. And I'm like, oh, I can definitely see now how yeah. you oh, could get easy. disoriented. You swear that you are up and down straight and level and you're in a turn hmm. it's the most bizarre thing and i can't begin to try to describe it to you because you sometimes just have to feel it yourself it is a very common problem though in aviation 
If you're not trained to do this, you are at a severe disadvantage in instrument meteorological conditions. That being said, the pilot wasn't entirely untrained for this. He was trained in what to do if he inadvertently entered IMC, which is called IIMC, or Inadvertent Instrument Meteorological Conditions. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He was trained to adjust the pitch and power to a stabilized positive rate of climb at an airspeed of 75 to 80 knots, then transition to autopilot before communicating with air traffic control. At that point, he should declare an emergency. The FAA guidance says, quote, it is imperative that the pilot commit to controlling the helicopter and remember it to aviate, navigate, and finally communicate. Often communication is attempted first, and it is natural to look for help in stressful situations. This may distract the pilot from maintaining control of the helicopter, end quote. In other words, fly the aircraft, figure out where you're going, then ask for help. The pilot did not follow his training. He reached out to ATC prematurely, and he maintained an excessive airspeed and climb rate. He did not declare an emergency, possibly because that would be admitting he made a mistake. The pilot also entered a left turn, which is evidence that he experienced the leans, which is a vestibular somatogyral illusion where he thought he was flying straight and level, but was actually in a left turn. He increased his task load with radio contact and identifying himself to ATC, which reduced his instrument scan that he should have been doing quasi-religiously. The helicopter then began to accelerate in its descent, which would have led to more illusion in that the pilot would perceive himself as climbing when he was in fact descending. Whoa. And this was evident in the ADSB data that showed him descending when he told the controller he was climbing. Oh. So it's part of your brain messing up acceleration. Oh, so that question that I asked before when he was rapidly descending and he was yes. telling them that he was climbing. He thought he was climbing. He thought he was climbing. Wow. He really did. He thought he was climbing, but he didn't trust his instruments. He wasn't paying attention to his instruments, and it yeah. happened so fast. I mean, we're talking a matter of about seconds. 20 seconds from, I think, yeah. the time that he went into the clouds, basically, climbed to the max altitude, and then descended all the way into the mountain. I mean, it happened Honestly, so fast. like, so everyone knows how to disrupt your vestibular system. You spin in circles. Yeah. Yep. Close your eyes and do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It screws you up. But It'll that's your dizzy. lateral dis like your lateral orientation imagine just doing somersaults for a couple minutes and then figuring which way's up and down and that's what he's experiencing that's crazy so So because he was prioritizing reaching out for communication he wasn't paying attention to his instruments yep and then in those 20 seconds when he wasn't looking at his stuff he thought one way was up and one way was down and it wasn't wow my big problem with this well there's a lot right? Because he really shouldn't have been flying to begin with, and we'll get into that later. But my big issue is when he said he was going to go through the layers. I'm like, you are a VFR. You should Uh be flying in visual. You should not be flying through any clouds, sir. Correct. That should not be anything you're doing. Don't know why you even think that's a good idea. Don't know why you think that's appropriate, but you are on a visual flight plan. You should be able to see the ground. The reason he thought it was a good idea is because he was lost. Yeah. And he thought the only right thing to do from there was to go up where he could get out and see. I think when he made that announcement, it was 944 and 34 seconds, at which time he was at 1370 feet MSL. He was already very low. And the cloud floor was at at 2400. Oh. So he's like, I can be in a cloud for 1000 feet. Yeah. The NTSB concluded that the pilot had spatial disorientation in IMC and he lost control and collided with terrain. Now back up a second. This is a good pilot. 
He was well-loved and trusted by his colleagues and clients. Why would he have done something so stupid? We've talked on this show about get their itis before. A term that was actually used in this report, fun fact. <laughs> it's actually called that? Yeah. Colloquially? Yeah. Wow. Yes. This yes. is a term that every pilot in aviation knows. Gotcha. Get their itis. And it's in their training. Where you become so focused on just getting to your destination that you ignore important safety details, which later lead to your demise. That's like kind of the same as like, I think it's called launch syndrome. Like for rockets and stuff, people mm-hmm. just like want to get to the launch without checking everything. Yep. Yeah. It's get their itis. Yeah. This next subject is a variant of that. Look at me using COVID terms. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that neither the operator nor the charter broker nor the client placed any pressure on the pilot to accept or complete the flight. But there is evidence that he placed pressure to do so on himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because think about it. Who was his client? Freaking Kobe Bryant. Right? I mean, in your head, if you were in charge of a very, very famous, important person to get somewhere, mm-hmm. you would want to do it, right? Yeah. You want so to do the best not, job you can. Yeah, it's not that like Kobe Bryant is like pushing him and no. calling shots. No, and I guarantee you if the pilot would have said, hey, no. we can't fly, Kobe would have figured out another way to get there, yeah. honestly. Because, you know, I'm sure that he's not like a horrible person. Not, And I didn't know Kobe Bryant. I don't know. If you did, let us know. But <laughs> my the assumption is, is the pilot's right, right? So if you can't fly, you can't fly. And that's always up to the captain. It's always up to the person flying the aircraft. Yes. I think my my signs that he was trying, like he was putting too much pressure on himself, was the fact that he was trying to prove himself. No, like actually. Like in the weather? No, I don't think so, and neither does the NTSB. Okay. Particularly what they took into consideration is that Kobe had said that this was his preferred pilot. He preferred this pilot above any other. He right. trusted this pilot to fly his children alone right the pilot probably took a lot of pride in that status and that alone and was quote-unquote friendly with kobe bryant you could say they were friends right and didn't want to disappoint him by not completing the flight his actions were reviewed by the director of operations the safety officer and the company pilots of island express and all of them said that this entire debacle was inconsistent with his usual flying and decision-making behavior The pilot probably experienced planned continuation bias, which is an unconscious cognitive bias to continue with the original plan despite changing conditions. The NTSB concluded that the pilot likely, we'll get into that conversation later, likely was influenced by his self-induced pressure to fulfill the client's travel needs, his lack of an alternative plan, and its continuation bias, which strengthened the closer they got to their destination. Now, my last little bit, we're going to dive into a subject we've discussed before, but is very much an ongoing subject in the world of aviation safety, and that is safety management systems, or SMSs. An SMS is put in place to provide tools to operators and pilots to perform accurate risk analysis and risk mitigation techniques and make it standard flight to flight. Island Express had one, even though it wasn't required by the FAA, which also means that the FAA didn't oversee it. I'll get into that. Which means that despite having one, they didn't necessarily have to follow it. We've already talked about one of the SMS tools the company had, the Flight Risk Analysis Form. These were intended to document the risks for each flight, provide mitigation for certain items, and ensure that the company management evaluated any planned flight in the elevated or high-risk zones. Great in theory, right? But there were no guidelines as to how far in advance, or rather how close to the flight, the pilots needed to complete the form. You could do it a day before. Two days before? That seems just 
wrong. How many flights could be reflected on one form? Or what criteria would require a new form be filled out? And each of those on its own could potentially negate the use of the risk analysis form altogether. The company also didn't have evaluations of the SMS to determine if it was implemented properly. And all of this was determined to have hindered the effectiveness of the form as a risk management tool. And that is all I have. And we're going to take a break. And then Miranda is going to rant. <laughs> I got a lot to say. It's a lot. Okay, friends. Break it, break. And we back. We back. Welcome to your regularly scheduled scheduled Miranda show, <laughs> where I cover findings, wrecks, and other stuff. Here comes the rage. So <laughs> she knows all this stuff, and she's covering the FAA. So let's talk about safety management systems, shall we? Yay! Yes. Most part one twenty nine, one twenty five, one twenty one, one twenty one operators need to have. SMS is in place. Yes. So part 121 operator is anything commercial or cargo flight, like anything that you would get on, right? Like you Usually, th- yes. that departs from a big airport. It is regularly scheduled passenger or cargo flights. Yes. So these are any of your major airlines that you fly with. I'm going to take flight 123 to Orange County Airport. Right. Wherever. So and then in the case of this, we're talking about a 135. Well, let me get into it. Okay. okay. So, 121 One. operators have to have SMSs in place. They have to be approved by the FAA. Okay? That has been a thing for a long time. Part 135. Charter this, operations. Yes, charter operations. This became a huge issue starting in 2009. It didn't say anything specifically or any crash specifically. It just became a huge issue in 2009. The NTSB started putting SMSs as being required for 135 operators starting in 2009. It was denied by the FAA saying that it was not an acceptable action for years. I, okay. So let me, let me finish and then we'll have a conversation about it because it pisses me off too. So all the way through till 2014, it required that. Helicopter air ambulance operators had to implement tools and procedures that were effective as SMSs that were put through by the FAA. They had to be approved by the FAA, which makes sense because those helicopters are important and, you know, they need to follow rules in case things happen. They are not part of 135 operations or they're like a section of 135. Mm -hmm. So in 2016, November 3rd, 2016... The NTSB issued a safety recommendation to the FAA to require all Part 131 op- 135 excuse me, operators to implement an SMS. All right, we're having technical difficulties. If you hear a little static, it, it's something weird going on with our mixer. Anyway, okay. On November 3rd, 2016, the NTSB issued a safety recommendation to the FAA to require all Part 135 operators to implement an SMS and have it be approved by the FAA. However, the FAA said no, in the long and short of things. They have the right to do that. And they do. basically what ended up happening was they implemented a voluntary program that if you have an SMS, you can submit it to the FAA, and they can tell you whether or not it's effective or not. But out of... 1,940 certified Part 135 operators. Guess how many did this? 17. Wow. 17 submitted SMSs to be approved by the FAA 
at a voluntary program. After this accident, the NTSB went, Hello? Are you going to do anything? And the FAA was like, we're working on it. There should be some sort of something out in 2022. Well, here we are. Where that'll go? I don't know. But I feel like it's not that hard to implement a recommendation where all 135 operators have to submit an SMS. Right. Uh, It's worked for part 121. Yes. I will say that it... So when you talk about 135, it's a little more complicated than that, though, because 135 can be very small. It can be one person and one airplane. They are allowed to have a 135 operation as long as they have a maintenance shop, basically, that can do regular maintenance for them at a certain level. And because people do this all the time, I mean, if you have a small charter operation where your airplane is hired for, say, fire crews to go watch over fires or to be for hire for, like, your little Cessna is hired for surveying, then that's a charter operation too, part 135. Yeah, but I feel like companies such as, what is this, Little Island Express? Island Express, they have an SMS, right? You can submit it to the FAA. Yes. So I I don't know, it's probably too complicated, which is why the FAA doesn't really have an answer to this yet, but if you're a company that is a certified charter company, you do charter flights, that's what you do, you should have to submit an SMS to the FAA to be approved. I think that it should, for the benefit of the very small charter operations, because this isn't as small, this isn't a large charter operation, but it's not a small one, obviously they have high-end clientele and such, then there should be standards as to what type of charter operations require it. Like, if you are over a certain number of seats on your aircraft, if you're over a certain level of service, if you're over a certain number of aircraft, if you're... I mean, it should be detailed, because Joe Blow in a Cessna 172 takes one person up for a survey operation. They probably don't need a full-blown safety management system like a 121 operator. And that's really hard for them to try to implement. They have their own little safety things in place, but... They fall under part, like, 91, which yeah. is VFR and such. So it, it's similar to that. It's like, yes, they should probably have a safety management system, and in this case, they probably definitely should have, but you can't expect all 135 operations to have it. Right. So, yeah, they're still working on it. That's part of the reason, like, that that was a factor in this accident. And they're like, if you had figured this out, probably would not have been that much of a problem. Right. So the next thing I want to talk about are simulation devices used for pilot training so this company all of their training is done in the actual helicopters and they use goggles that restrict their vision for training when going into imc right and basically the ntsb was like really you should have a simulator so you can simulate flying into imc yes and figure out the easiest and safest way to get out of imc interesting thing but our pilot actually did have simulated imc time oh interesting the Quite company a bit. did not require it they did not require it and, and they he... didn't do it with their pilots and he was not certified in this but he did have simulated imc time on that is something that he like went out of his way to do i don't know they didn't explain they just said that he had something like 62 hours of simulated imc time and that doesn't necessarily mean it was successful imc time either no it doesn't exactly we don't know the context it just says that he had 62 hours or something like that of simulated imc time and they feel in the section that i read 
that if they had used simulators to simulate IMC and having pilots train on the simulators where it's a safe, like you yourself are not going to die training in a simulator with this. But on an actual helicopter, even with another person in the helicopter flying the helicopter with you, it is a danger. So they said that it would be in the interest of the company to have a simulator to train their pilots for when they get into IMC. And that ain't cheap. No, it's not. But they had suggested that it was a good idea. The next one's about, guess what? Recorders. Oh boy. <laughs> so, this was the part that I was really kind of waiting There's for. two sections on this, and I'm only going to go over it briefly, but basically the NTSB is like, you should at least have an FDR on... Yes. Fair they, minimum. They What's an FDR? didn't. Flight, data, Flight recorder. data recorder. So it would record things like the altitude, the roll, the heading, all of that. It records the instrument... Engine conditions. It in, yeah, it, it records the instrumentation and flight data. And Anything? this flight didn't? Like the... No. no. Correct. And Helicopters don't require them. And it wasn't required to. And they said, you should require them to at least have flight data recorders, because then we can kind of sort of figure out when something goes wrong, why it went wrong. So yeah. the first flight data recorders, which if you don't recall the history fellow listeners i believe was episode like 35 something like that the one we the the cursed one the cursed episode the initial flight data recorders could only record a couple of parameters and so it would do like the bare minimum heading altitude acceleration these days it doesn't take much to record most things like it doesn't take much equipment and recorders themselves can be basically an sd card so nowadays most flight data recorders record almost everything that a pilot can see on their instruments in front of them everything from engine speeds to heading to flight plans and it'll also record other things i mean deeper data on the engines temperatures and things like that speeds and then also it'll record like weather data around the aircraft it'll record radar data around the aircraft if you're ever really super bored you could pull up an ntsb report from a recent crash and Mm -hmm. usually in the appendices they'll have the entire fdr readout and it takes pages yes just to show the graphs and that's like multiple streams of data on one graph and they still have to have a ton of them wow so they also said that having a small camera instead of the data, something to record information, yeah. basically. They want something that can re- give you or give whoever some information about the flight. And even for, like, the operator itself to see what the pilots are doing right. during flight and why they're making decisions. And even if there's no accidents, it's just good to have that information so that they know what to train on. Right. And... Also, jumping back to that episode where flight data recorders came about, once again, Australia is kind of heading the charge on this. They have been working on this in the world of helicopters. And we talked about this briefly, actually, quite a while ago. But yes. Australia has been fighting to get CVRs and FDRs implemented into helicopters for a while now. So the next thing is also crash-resistant flight recorder systems. Because we talked about this on a Sikorsky S-76C Plus crash that was from Finland that crashed into the Baltic Sea. I don't remember if it was the Miranda Sode I did on helicopters. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. I think it was. And they had flight data recorders and CVRs, but which is a cockpit voice recorder. But it was not... Intended to survive a crash. Quote, unquote, crash resistant, and so it got destroyed. Right. 
when the helicopter crashed. So basically, similar to what airplanes have in the tail, they want something similar on the helicopters and in a place where they will not get completely destroyed if the helicopter crashes. And I don't know where that would be. It's a little weird on helicopters. Because the tail can rip off know. of a helicopter oh, yeah. because it has a rotor on it. You know, And that's happened. There's no great place for them. Because anything in like the rear fuselage, you got engines. Mid fuselage, you got a rotor. Yep. Front end usually hits first, so... Honestly, the best place is probably the belly. Yeah. Yeah. Weirdly enough, you would think that's like the part that... Like would... underneath the floor. Yep. Or, yeah. You would think that that would, that would be the part that impacts, but usually not, actually, in helicopter crashes. It's the It's nose. usually nose first. Yeah. Like airplanes. Weirdly enough. Some of them do go straight down, but it's usually... They're heavy one direction or the other, so they fall... One way or the other. One way or the other. It's kind of like butter on toast. So those were like the things at the end of the analysis portion that were kind of extraneous, but they were like, you should still talk about it because... Yeah, the analysis that wasn't analysis, I'm like, Miranda, can you do this? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so now we're going into findings. All right. Finally. I'm not going to read number one because Christy basically already mentioned it. There were three things that weren't yeah. a part of this crash. I'm not going to restate them because they weren't a part of the crash. So we'll start with number two. Although the air traffic controller's failure to report the loss of radar contact and radio communication with the accident flight was inconsistent with air traffic control's procedures, this deficiency did not contribute to the accident or affect its survivability. Air traffic control had nothing to do with this, per se. They really I should mean, have told somebody, which was yeah. the thing that they, that's why that's finding. I'm not going to say they did the right things, but yeah, they definitely They didn't, didn't they weren't the problem here. They were within their rights. <laughs> yes. Yes. Basically. Had the pilot completed an updated flight risk analysis form for the accident flight that considered the weather information available at the time the flight departed, the flight would have remained within the company's low-risk category, but would have required the pilot to seek input from the director of operations to provide an alternative flight plan. At the time that the pilot took action to initiate a climb, the helicopter had already begun penetrating clouds, and the pilot lost visual reference to the horizon in the ground. The loss of outside visual reference was possibly intermittent at first, but likely complete by the time the flight began to enter the left turn that diverged from its route over U.S. Route 101. The pilot's poor decision to fly at an excessive airspeed for the weather conditions was inconsistent with his adverse weather avoidance training and reduced the time available for him to choose an alternative course of action to avoid entering instrument meteorological conditions. Fun fact, we've talked about this before, helicopters can hover. Yep. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. It's not like airplanes where you kind of, kind of, they're like sharks. You kind of have to just keep going forward, right? Yep. With an airplane. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I didn't even consider that. In a helicopter, you can just stop and you assess. You could just stop and wait. <laughs> yes. You can hover. As long as you have enough Correct. fuel, you can hover. This was one of those things that, to me, when I was reading all this, was kind of like, why are you treating this like an airplane? Yeah. Like, when he put it into a hold, he did loops. At 40 to 70 knots. You could just stay like there. Why are you doing <laughs> yeah, no, loops? You, you can see just that. hold. <laughs> yeah, you can see it on the map. He's like doing loops. Yeah. yeah. Which just is normal for an airplane. Right. Yeah. A fixed wing aircraft. But you're in a helicopter. Stand still. Yeah. You can stay stop. There. <laughs> you can literally, on a dime, stop in the air. <laughs> and still be in the air. Yep. Like, at no point did he figure, okay, Maybe I should just wait for a sec. You can red light, green light that. Yeah. Like, you can, <laughs> like, you can pull up and stop. <laughs> and wait until you got the green light. Yeah. I think that just goes to show he really thought he knew what was going on. Yeah. And he didn't. didn't. 
The pilot experienced spatial disorientation while climbing the helicopter in instrument meteorological conditions, or IMC, which led to his loss of helicopter control and the resulting collision with terrain. The pilot's decision to continue the flight into deteriorating weather conditions was likely influenced by his self-induced pressure to fulfill the client's travel needs. His lack of an alternative plan and his plan continuation bias, which strengthened as the flight neared the destination. Island Express Helicopters Incorporated's lack of documented policy and safety assurance evaluations to ensure that its pilots are consistently and correctly completing the flight risk analysis forms hindered the effectiveness of the form as a risk management tool. Like, what's the point of having it if there's no standard way to use it? Right. A fully implemented mandatory safety management system could enhance Island Express Helicopters Incorporated's ability to manage risks. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The use of appropriate simulation devices in scenario-based helicopter pilot training has the potential to improve pilots' abilities to accurately assess weather and make appropriate weather-related decisions. Again, you can just stop. Yep. At any point. If he couldn't figure out, like if he was looking at his instruments, which by the way, he wasn't really... He wasn't IFR trained, but if he was looking at his instruments and he was at any point confused, he could just stop Yep, and wait and figure it out before continuing to fly. That's the thing that I keep coming back to that I just realized. Unlike normal, not quote unquote normal pilots. Fixed wing. Fixed wing pilots where they have to keep going forward to figure out a solution, helicopter pilots, again, literally can just stop and figure out what's going on and then continue. So, again, as long as you have enough fuel. But you can land anywhere with a helicopter, really. As long as there's, like, a big open space. Mm-hmm. So. Do you we... don't have to find a highway to land on. Question. Did we ever talk about who the pilot actually is? Oh, he's the chief pilot for Island Express? Oh, no. We never said any. No. We didn't talk about oh, that. Oh, wow. <laughs> he's in charge of the pilots and their training. Gotcha. That makes sense why they like them like him so much. Yeah. Okay, objective research to evaluate spatial disorientation simulation strategies may help determine which applications are most effective for training pilots to recognize the onset of spatial disorientation and successfully mitigate it. The NTSB and the FAA have done several researches about spatial disorientation. Mm-hmm. I read a bunch of it when I covered a flight for a Miranda Sode. Basically, they just, you gotta make sure pilots understand when they need to not listen to their brain anymore. Which is so hard. So, under normal circumstances, we would have had Brendan on this episode since he is currently training for his instrument rating. Yes. He is otherwise indisposed. But we can, if you all are interested in having maybe a little forum with him, we can talk about it. Yeah. Yes. This is also, in brief, what happened to... And we might talk about this one eventually, too. The Amazon 767, the Atlas Air flight in Houston. That crashed in Texas, yeah. In Houston, that went straight down. Yes, it's... We've talked about it with Brendan before, and it's a very interesting case, but it's 100% spatial disorientation. Yes. It's deadly. Oh, yeah. It's caused many flights to crash. A flight data monitoring program, which can enable the operator to identify and mitigate factors that may influence deviations from established norms and procedures, can be particularly beneficial for operators like Island Express Helicopters Incorporated that conduct single pilot operations and have little opportunity to directly observe their pilots in the operational environment. So not only would uh, an FDR and CVR be beneficial for the purposes of crash evaluation, but they would also be helpful in evaluating the pilot 
while they're still alive. Well, yeah, because you don't have a co-pilot. There was nope. no co-pilot here. There was one pilot. And when that happens, you take away a checks and balance that yep. fixed-wing pilots, especially commercial... You take away crew resource management. Right, because then you have one person making all the decisions. Last finding. The crash-resistant flight recorder system that records parametric data and cockpit audio and images with a view of the cockpit environment to include as much of the outside view as possible would have provided valuable information about the visual cues associated with the adverse weather and the pilot's focus of attention in the cockpit following the flight's entry into instrument meteorological conditions or IMC. So, all that being said, the probable cause, as always, verbatim from the report. All right. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the pilot's decision to continue flight under visual flight rules into instrument meteorological conditions, which resulted in the pilot's spatial disorientation and loss of control. Contributing to the accident was the pilot's likely self-induced pressure and the pilot's plan continuation bias, which adversely affected his decision-making in Island Express Helicopters Incorporated's inaccurate review and oversight of its safety management processes. So Miranda and I watched this entire board meeting with the NTSB. One word. Likely. They debated whether or not to include that part of the probable cause, where to put that part of the probable cause, where to put the word likely within that clause of the probable cause for like half an hour. And then they had to take a break because they couldn't Agree. So they took a break. <laughs> and went like, to the investigators and were like, figure it for out. For like 30 minutes and then came back. One word. Likely. One word. Because Why? they couldn't prove self-induced pressure. Right. But okay. also, they, put, no, they just put it as a contributing factor. There's no CVR to prove it. There's no witness anything because everyone died. Like, there's no way of telling for sure that that was... So they couldn't put it in the probable cause. Even though it says probable cause and not definitive cause. I don't know. Right. Yeah. All right. So recommendations. There's only a few of these. So as a result of this investigation, the National Transportation Safety Board makes the following new, new. safety recommendations. New being the keyword there. Yep. To the FAA. Require the use of appropriate simulation devices during initial and recurrent pilot training. And basically that's for 135 helicopter operators. I'm not going to read all the way through that. Mostly because it helps them figure out aircraft performance, human factors, aircraft operations specialists to evaluate spatial disorientation simulations, that kind of thing. So putting them in a simulator with someone else in actual, like, real life yes. situations. So, that, so they can address decision making, skills, procedures, etc. for these kinds of scenarios without putting themselves in danger. They recommend right. to the Island Express Helicopters Incorporated to participate in the FAA's Safety Management System Voluntary Program. Which means actually submit their SMS for to the FAA. To get evaluated to see how effective it is. Which makes sense since it didn't do anything here. Right. And then also to implement some sort of FDM or flight data monitoring program in each helicopter. So they know what their helicopter pilots are doing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then previously issued 
safety recommendations by the NTSB. That they are reiterating. They're like, excuse me, we already made these recommendations to you, but... they're still important. pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) They're still important. So to the FAA, after the action of safety recommendation A-16-34 is completed, which, by the way, is the one about the SMSs, require all Part 135 operators to establish a structured flight data monitoring program that reviews all available data sources to identify deviations from established norms, procedures, and other potential safety issues. To Airbus Helicopters, Bell, Leonardo Helicopter Division, MD Helicopters, Robinson Helicopter Company, and Sikorsky, a Lockheed Martin company. Sikorsky is a Lockheed Martin company? Apparently. Yes, they are. Yes. Provide your existing turbine-powered helicopters that are not equipped with a flight data recorder or a cockpit voice recorder a means to install a crash-resistant flight data recorder system that requires cockpit audio and images with a view of the cockpit environment to include as much of the outside view as possible and parametric data per aircraft system installation, all this specified in the technical standard order C-197 for monitoring systems. I argue... That any turbine helicopter, much like they said, should be equipped with an uh-huh. FDR and a CVR. There's no reason not They're to. They're transport-rated well, aircraft. Well, pretty much. That's the whole thing. Is like the whole. If you have a turbine helicopter, there are very, very few that are operated by a privately owned person, like owned helicopter. Yeah. yeah. They are pretty much all operated by companies. Yeah. They're all operated by charters, by medical, by what have you, whatever it be. They're usually operated by a company for some form of commercial service. And so I argue that they absolutely should have that because they are in commercial use. I honestly argue that these days, recorders can be very, very simple to implement into pretty much anything in aviation, and that they should start to be mandatory in the coming years because we have way too many accidents in general aviation in general. The next recommendation is a restated recommendation by the NTSB to the FAA about Part 135 to install flight data recording devices, but yes. also have them be required on Part 91, 121, and 135 operators. That is great. 91 is any kind of like flight school and any anything. place you do your training. Pretty much, it's pretty much anything in the mass of general aviation, which because is good. Currently, both of those recommendations are open with an unacceptable response. At the end of them, from the FAA. This makes me mad. But Just, if you make it required, then they have to do it. And then, you don't have to scramble for answers when stuff happens. Right. So, since the crash, you might be wondering, what has been done? These are all recommendations. One of the sections of the report actually lists post-accident actions. On March 6, 2020... Pretty briefly after the accident, Island Express revised the Sikorsky S-76 series maneuver section of its training manual to include items for brownout, whiteout, or flat light conditions, unusual attitude recovery, and IIMC avoidance and recovery. IIMC meaning inadvertent IMC. IMC. Yep. Which is what this was. Yeah. They added that training pretty immediately. Good. In, In terms of aviation, pretty immediately. Yes. 
Well, because, like, anything can happen. Yep. On that same date, the company issued a Sikorsky S-76 Series Maneuvers Guide, which the FAA approved on March 17th. The guide included items for IIMC and unusual attitude recovery following IIMC. The guide also emphasized that avoiding the adverse weather was the preferred option, noting that when faced with deteriorating weather, planning and prevention, not recovery, are the best strategies to eliminate unintended IMC-related accidents and fatalities. I would argue that if the manufacturer puts it in a standard operating procedure... They didn't. Right. Then it would trickle down to the operators. Yeah, it didn't. But the operator did. Yes, the operator did, and I think is trying to set an example. I don't know how many other Part 135 helicopter operators took the... You know, it probably went far anyways because of the amount of attention that this accident got. Yeah. Usually when that happens... A lot of operators, if they operate a similar helicopter, or even other helicopters, they probably implemented a lot I of think the same things. I think you could also argue that if they hadn't done this, they probably would have gone under, given the extent of the VIPs involved. No, it, yes. it, it's very much in the public eye. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And that tends to motivate companies. I was looking at like their Yelp reviews are 4.8, but their Google reviews are 2.8. Mm, you killed Kobe. People, yeah, have said some things on Google, because it's unmonitored, Yelp is, is monitored. monitored. Any questions, Leo? No. That was... That was the yeah. Kobe Bryant crash. Thank yeah. you for joining us. Of course, yeah. That was a lot of stuff that I hadn't heard before. And yeah. that's kind of our hope with this episode is to educate. It's a lot. Well, because when people speculate, people say wild stuff. Yeah. Yes, right. of course. So that, I very much wanted to avoid only listening to the wild stuff. Yes. This is what actually happened and what factually they could prove or disprove yeah and how they believe it affected the accident yeah all right friendos thank you so much for listening if you are a patron and you want to stick out at the post episode i got a funny thing i want to tell you guys about that i saw at the movies yesterday about helicopters actually okay (laughs) so it's relevant (laughs) i like this thank you so much for listening as always thank you to our patrons you guys are awesome but all of our listeners are awesome. Thank you so much. There is a rating system now incorporated on Spotify. So if you could give us a five-star rating on there, that would greatly help and be appreciated. And make sure you send us your stories. If you want some ducks, submit your form for the duck. Will There's do. still merch out there. You don't have to submit a form. I, yeah, okay, whatever. You live here. I want a duck. <laughs> <laughs> I just want a duck. We'll Do you want one duck. duck with three signatures or three ducks each with one signature? Or that's just a what duck. we would normally send. Or just a duck. I just want a duck. There you go. Wow, I have a duck. We gave him a duck. <laughs> it's got eyelashes. All right. <laughs> it does. Thank you, guys. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. Please, please stay healthy out there with and this new variant the out there. for the love of God, wear a mask. Please, just be good people and wear a mask. Okay, we will catch you all next time. Keep Keep your speed up! (laughs) (laughs) Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by all three of us. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.